Hello, and welcome to the Ox Unplugged, where our taste will take you on a trip all the way to Flavortown. I'm Crispy Crab. Uh, I am Mr. Jaywit. Are we going to talk about Flavor Man already? Oh, do you think we're not going to bring up Guy Fieri in a food oh. episode? Mm. God damn it, Crispy. <laughs> Wait, oh, sorry. We, we have a Can special... we start again? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's the whole point of my... I was playing video with my brother. I had Dietrich Ping. It might have went to 283 sometimes. Sometimes down to 150. Man, you had more ping than a Vietnamese phone book. What? Okay, we gotta oh. cut that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, take three. <laughs> hey, welcome to the BP and Bell podcast. No, nope, we're not the BPL. BPL. Oh we're God. not the BPL. Oh my <laughs> God! Straw is uh, an IBM computer that has gained self sentience, and um, he has connection issues because he, you know, '80s software and all that. No, in Wyoming, it's worse. '80s software. Oh no! Oh no! It's Wyoming. <laughs> That's even worse. What's in Wyoming? Closing straw. I was going to say nothing, but... <laughs> so anyway, I think we should say what our topic is this week. Halion, please. Halion has a, a message for everyone. It's so, a PSA. Yes. Our topic today is a bit of a departure from our usual fare. We'll be discussing something so fundamental and essential to humanity as we know it that many of us, in, in one way or another, revolve our lives around it. Flavor time, yeah. Its historical significance cannot be understated, nor its role as a firmament of many cultures, both new and ancient. Indeed, its uniqueness can be so great from one peoples to another that whole countries and ethnicities, for right or wrong, are often viewed entirely through the lens of it. It often brings people together, even though from region to region and even individual to individual, there is a wide range of opinions on what is right, proper, or best in regards to it. Indeed, fierce debates have often broken out over the most basic minutiae of it, with all sides being absolutely certain that theirs is the only correct way. Because the other people are wrong. Many families pass down its traditions, while some corporations fiercely guard its secrets. Still other individuals make the choice to freely give and share it with the rest of the world. However, despite all divisions and opinions on what makes it good or distinct, it is fair to say that it is almost universally identifiable and agreeable when it is really, really bad. I don't care what you say. Pineapple does not belong in a pizza. God damn it! I don't mind. Hey. I I can I finish? Oh, I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, it's not allowed. Excessive pursuit, <laughs> excessive pursuit or indulgence in it is discouraged, to the point that many religions even consider such behavior to be abhorrent and sinful. And yet, when it is shared with great affection with others is anecdotally considered an expression of love. 
And so, in the words of the great Lionel Bart, we bring you food, glorious food. Yes, this is the food cast episode. Yeah. If it's an expression of love, what is the love when I bring someone bean beer? Bean beer? Where you ferment beans in yeast and you create beer. That's a meme. No, I can show you. Oh, no. No, no, no. I mean, that's what that is. That is, that is, that is a live action meme if you make bean oh, beer. Oh, okay. Speaking of that, of uncomfortable sensations in my. Um, have you ever, do you guys remember the whole licking, licking fad that happened a few years ago? Over? The, the, uh, the what? The food, who's licking food? Excuse me? The food licking phase, like, like people on fucking Instagram or TikTok or fucking Vine, the fuck. Oh, the ones that would, they'd go into like restaurants and just like lick the food. Like, like in, like on a buffet or some shit. People's food, then is that is that what they're doing? People went to a convenience store, licked lids off of an ice, and licked the top of it. Oh, you're talking about Ariana Grande. That's just theft. I, I don't know what else they want out of that. You know, I can't imagine why something like that could have possibly gone out of style, especially in the last three years. No, no, I don't think that's possible. Not from licking dairy that's been frozen in the fridge definitely not i mean let me put this have you ever ate a peanut butter jelly uh i can say that i have because i'm not an alien what happens if you lick you still have that some of that residue in your mouth get you lick something you put it back then says it goes mom mom i want i have a peanut allergy you just committed murder let me tell you the story of Typhoid Mary it is a rebuttal to that because she spread typhoid because she was a healthy carrier and she was also a cook. Now, the thing is, of course, a virus won't survive in an oven. But what it was, was she was preparing ice cream for the kids. Also, I think part of it was she wasn't washing her hands. So basically you had poo-poo peanut butter ice cream that she was serving to the kids that gave them a nice dose of toy th- typhoid. I thought today's yeah. episode was going to be a nice, happy talk about how, what sort of food we make. Not oh, I'll abusing. talk about that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, you know, this is the Yawks Unplugged, baby. You, you just don't know where it's going to go. Is this where I bring up the McGangbang? The what? Oh, you bring it oh the, I will bring up the McGangbang. No. Do not. No. No. It's too late. There's nothing inherently wrong with it. It's just bad. It's just culinary perversion, it's all. Don't worry about it. Uh, We should explain what the Mc... Yes. The the McGangbang is for the McDonald's consumer that gets a little creative (laughs) when it comes to their cuisine. You basically take a McDouble and a McChicken, you split the McDouble open in the middle, you shove the McChicken in there, and voila, you have a McGangbang. Which you eat to your heart's content. It, it seems bad. To your heart's content or to your heart explodes? Yes. <laughs> it, it seems bad, but I will tell you from experience, it is pretty good. Well, all right then. What you're talking about is the McDonald's version of like the turducken. Basically. <laughs> McDuck- Mc- McDuckin. 
There you go. The McDuckin. Yeah. It's a distinctly American tradition <laughs> of abusing more things from McDonald's. That sounds like a lot better thing than what you made it sound like. The McDangbang is just the name. Yeah, I know, but the, the name... I don't know what you're doing at your McDonald's, but... Then you put into the McGang sound like something worse. Oh, no. You just get creative with the names is all. Let's not go there. It's all about branding. Yes. If McDonald's was smart, they would add the McGangbang to the menu. Yeah, I think they're going to get a lot of letters about that. Well, that's people's problems for not being progressive towards the gangbang okay. culture. Okay, Let, <laughs> let's reel it back. Reeling it back. Reeling it back. I'm looking at the link that Straw sent, and I like how the article headline is second Bluebell ice cream liquor arrested because there was a first one. There's multiple. That's just cursed, man. It is. Like, of all the things to like and claim as your own, dairy... At least, like, on the hot dog roller, that shit's gonna be, like, on there all day. So, food. 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 More specifically, cooking. Because I happen to like cooking a lot. It's one of my favorite things to do. I would be a chef if they were paid more. But they're not, so I never went into it and never cared that. And never paid in stress and cigarettes. Yeah, Yeah, basically. I, I also really enjoy cooking. You enjoy but cooking for a different reason, though, I guess. Food service yeah. is a new type of hell yeah. uh, that what? I do not want to subject myself to. No way. Cooking. The other day, when I, um, two days I cooked with cherry mums, onions, should add vinegar, but I didn't, and basil. And then just stirred all that up, add some seasoning, put the salmon on a wax, and just dump the... Um, Tomato and onions and onion mix on top. Pretty good. On a bed of rice, pretty good. I'll be honest, it's a list of ingredients I was not expecting to come together, but that's the fun thing about cooking. So, okay, what style of cooking do you guys work on? What do you aim for? Or is it just whatever I got, whatever I can? Yeah, that one. Pretty much, yeah. Okay. I like to cook breakfast for myself a lot of the time. You know, when I'm not, like, rushing to get to work or anything, it's usually more a weekend thing. But I enjoy doing that in the morning, having a cup of coffee, just putting something on, like a podcast or something, and just cooking breakfast for myself. And sometimes my girlfriend, if she's hungry, because she's not a breakfast person. I am not a breakfast person either. The first time I eat is lunch. Yeah, I used to be a breakfast person. Now I'm not really, I mean, I love a good breakfast. Um, like I especially like when I think of breakfast, I think of mornings. Uh, we 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 camped a lot as a kid, you know, because we were rednecks. Am I the only kids. sane person on this podcast that likes breakfast? No, 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 no. Let me be clear. I like yeah. breakfast food. I don't yeah, like yeah. eating. I don't like having Absolutely. to get up and eating at first. Ah, uh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Like for me, breakfast. The memory of breakfast is getting up in the morning, getting out of my. Uh, tent or sleeping bag and dad's got the the uh, propane stove going and you know he's f- grilling up hash browns and toast mm. and bacon and sausage and uh, uh, scrambled eggs and just putting it all together and then we're all sitting around you know on a hard concrete 
picnic table, eating breakfast on paper plates with plastic spoons, but there was just something about that. It always tasted better when we were out of the lake. And that's just where I, where I go to. And I don't eat a big breakfast because I like to save my calories to eat at night. I'm, I eat my big meal at dinner. But I fucking love breakfast. Like, I will go to the Waffle House and I will order the Altar Special with grits, eggs, bacon, whole wheat toast because it's better than wheat, white bread and I will die on that hill and a fucking waffle. And Here that is that is sex in your mouth. I, you're going to be upset at me. We don't have uh, grits or waffle houses up north. Yeah, same here. I mean, all right. They're... It's not your fault. <laughs> oh, we have okay. Cracker Barrel. <laughs> we have Denny's. Have the Cracker Barrel. <laughs> Cracker Barrel wishes it was Waffle House. Middle has none of that. It's like a few breakfasts, but you can also get chicken for steak, steak for breakfast here. So there's that. That sounds like a fun time. It is. <laughs> Halia. Yes. You made me cry. What? Huh. Made me cry. What did I because do? Because. That made me remind myself dad. He loved cooking breakfast. Sucked at cleaning up mm-hmm. breakfast, but he loved cooking breakfast. One of his fe- yep. specialties was sourdough pancakes. My dad, uh, he always likes to cook breakfast for his, like, Saturday, Sunday. The thing that he used to make that I really enjoyed was something he called shipwreck, where it's just a mix mash of, like, potatoes and sausage and just egg, whatever was in the fridge that was leftovers, you know, throw that in there. It was the best. Or just, you know, pancakes or French toast on the skillet. Mm. Great morning. Yeah, I used to do that when my kids were younger. Sunday mornings were pancake mornings. I'd get up early, mix up a giant, like, just tub of pancake batter. And I would sit there for, like, an hour just making, like, you know, plate-sized pancakes. Just stacks and stacks of them. And then by the time everybody was up... There'd be tons of pancakes, and then so we'd all sit around eating pancakes, watch TV together, you know, just kind of laughing, cutting up. Uh, Good times. For me, the only time we really had a big breakfast was during Christmas, Christmas Day. Mm -hmm. My parents got up early, and they just filled the table with sausages, bacon, everything. And it was amazing. Sounds pretty nice. It's funny how... Our memories of food are so often tied to family or holidays or special occasions. Most time when we were, when humans were hunter and gatherers, it was you eat as you go and then you go on fire and have more food. I mean, Jesus, fuck. Food goes all the way down to lizard brain part of your head. That goes, food, I want food. And then everything else just constructs it upwards. See, I'm just thinking of that uh, scene from Ratatouille where the the food critic takes a bite of the food towards the end of the movie and he's like flashbacks to having like lunch with his mother as a kid. Like mm-hmm. that that I think is the power of like the taste of food. Like my mom, she makes a uh, special kind of chicken pot pie. Now, most people listening to this podcast would probably imagine a pie. No, that's the inferior kind of chicken pot pie. This kind of pot pie is more like a dumpling soup. And it is delicious, and it's this recipe that my mom hand makes on a special occasion and did a lot as a kid, just, you know, rolling the dough out with flour on the table. And it it's, was something that really sticks with me even now. 
the style of cooking that my mom and her mom did when I was a kid. See, I, I relate to that, Crispy. This past summer, my just a little background. My mom is like that old lady that you see who lives in her yard, whose yard and house look like they're the cover of a magazine, like Better Homes and Gardens or some shit. And like that, that is who she is. Like she does not slow down. She is go, 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 working in the yard, fixing stuff, doing stuff. That's just who she was. Well, early June this year, she goes out for one of her two-mile walks that she does every day before to start in the yard. And she, her knee started hurting. By the time she, so she turned around. By the time she got back to a house, she couldn't walk. Turns out, somehow, because, you know, lady in her 70s, she had fractured two spots in her knee. Ooh. So she was essentially house-ridden for the entire summer. So... She can't let her yard go to crap, and because she's the special type of person that she is, she's not going to just hire someone to come out and work on the yard, because God knows they're not going to do it exactly how she wants it done. So, <laughs> one, Is she just driving? So one or two days a week, since I am the closest offspring to her, I would go over to her house this summer and cut her grass, do whatever yard work, you know, dig up. Dig up plants, retransplant plants, you know, clean off the clean off the gutters, you know, what whatever it is that yeah. she needed done out in the yard, pick up sticks, whatever. Well, the payoff for this is she would make dinner and we would share dinner, which which was kind of nice. You know, my mom lives alone, so she was happy to have the company. But it was once a week like being transported back in time to my childhood because my mom still cooks the same meals the same way that she did when I was a kid. So to have the same country fried steak with homemade mashed potatoes and boiled cabbage, to have her meatloaf, to have her homemade beef vegetable soup. I mean, it was, it was literally like once a week just having nostalgia in my mouth it was really kind of a worth it, all the extra work and the headache, just to be able to kind of relive that. Absolutely. And that is powerful. I would give anything to go back in time to have Sunday lunch at my grandparents' house. My, my dad's dad and mom, my mama and my papa, fuck you, I was raised in the South, that's what we called them. I would love to go back just once and to walk in that tiny little house where you could feel the heat coming off that kitchen as soon as you walked in and to just taste my grandmother's cooking again. Because you never walked into that woman's house and there wasn't at least two cakes and a pie, minimum, homemade from scratch. And just to taste the things that she would make. I would give anything for that. Oh, man. I would give anything Taste my dad's sourdough cement rolls again. Oh, man. Those sound really nice. So what kind of stuff do you guys like to cook? I like to make a lot of stir-fry. I have a old wok that's probably older than I am that I'll cook in. And I like to usually do chicken and stuff. I'll do chicken and shrimp sometimes but feel real fancy. But that's yeah. kind of my go-to. I default mostly for Asian foods as well just because... So good. It's it's just what I like, yeah. It's fucking good, yeah. Every time, and I'm it like, is. one thing I have noticed about being on the internet so much is I can know 
exactly how someone cooks in a different culture immediately. I don't have to do any sort of like anything else with it. I can know what like a generic uh, Middle Eastern meal is like. So it's true. I don't tend to look too deeply into it because, well, because I know every, like I can look anything up. Suddenly it doesn't matter exactly what I produce or what I eat. I am in a big town. I can just grab whatever. I can make effectively anything. So everything's opened up to me now. The ability of to make anything, it's kind of unheard of for anyone older than, like anyone younger than 40. Just, I, I can do it. It's amazing. I love it. That to me is so uh, wonderful about everything. Just being like, let's do this. Let's try this. Let me take a look at this thing. I love that. That is pretty nice, yeah. We found some really good recipes to make, one in particular being uh, Mississippi pot roast, which is basically like a normal pot roast, but you put uh, certain kinds of spices in there to make it really good. It's like a really nice recipe. Personally, I like to just either see what works, see what doesn't. Oh, it's it's half of fun of cooking. Like, I made homemade spaghetti, like, I blessed the tomatoes, mixed all up, I... I added the ha- the hamburger and did all that, add things. And I kind of disappointed my mom because she was expecting Italian spaghetti. Oh, none of them. She doesn't have any of that non-Italian bagel or oregano or parsley. Oh, Italian spices. You know, all of the Italians that every single Italian in Italy uses, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another stuff. <laughs> Yeah. Even though the fact that the tomato is not native to Italy, it was actually brought over from the New World. Yeah. <laughs> wow. She told me to shut yeah. up. Mamma mia, it's a conspiracy. I have a conspiracy. I do actually have a conspiracy. A about flavor it. conspiracy. I do, it is. It's about what people consider authentic. Because you never see anyone talk about, oh, this is like Japanese sushi. Absolutely. And you, you start look. or actually I don't. I can't promise that Japanese sushi is like that. But a lot of foods, it's like, oh, this is an authentic thing. Uh, Neapolitan pizza. It's pure from Neapolitan, like uh, uh, Nepali. It's this wonderful thing. And it's existed for in this form of a pizza for like maybe 100 years or so. Yeah. Even though it's like that is where pizza came from. So like obviously all of it. I thought it came from New York. I, my conspiracy is that the history is you had a lot of Italian immigrants coming over and they landed in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them were, were from Nepal and then mm-hmm. they brought over their pizza and then it changed to New York pizza just because it's been physically separated. But okay, I got to finish my conspiracy first. My, okay. my conspiracy is that authentic foods only have existed for 100 years. The idea of this is the proper thing to do it. So the racial memory of what is a, actually, I guess the cultural memory of an authentic food is only limited to a hundred years. Fuck me. That actually kind of makes sense. Yeah. yeah I, so, I think you were 100% correct. Yeah. Yeah. I have a story that kind of relates to that, Mr. J. Okay. So, and I, so, and, and I agree with you, by the way, I think that like yeah. what we think of as authentic, isn't really authentic. It is a, a regional adjusted version of what it's authentic for yes for that location but not 
Right. Everything gets adjusted for the region that it's in. Yeah. Yeah. And there's nothing better than in a story I read about. I love watching documentaries of old restaurants or old companies, old shopping stores, shit like that. Things that are used to exist but have gone out extinct. I love watching that. So I watch a lot of weird stuff, a lot of weird YouTube videos. So I watched one about the founding of Taco Bell and... Oh, uh, Adam Agusia's video? They were the only uh, franchise to survive the franchise wars, you know. That is true. Now all restaurants are Taco Bell. But the founder of Taco Bell was a gentleman named Glenn Bell, who founded his first Taco Bell restaurant in 1962 in Downey, California. And he was trying to come up with a way to sell Mexican-style food to... American audiences to do it in a fast food setting. So he was trying to figure out, you know, well, how do we make like a Mexican street taco? You know, it's a little corn tortilla. It's soft, what have you. Well, that's not very portable. It's a little messy. It's not as simple. So he came up with taking the same uh, tortilla, but then you deep fry it, make it a hard shell. This was not traditional Mexican fare at all. But this was something new to make it easy, to make it fast food compliant. So he came up with the hard shell taco. So he opened his Taco Bell, and in his autobiography, he said, I knew we had something when this typical rich oil Texan man walked up with his big white hat and his big Cadillac car. And he said, uh, what's a taco? And he said, well, you know, they're 10 cents a piece. Why don't you try one? And he handed over his dime, and he handed him a taco, and he took a bite of it, and it just cracked apart and fell apart all in his hands, all over, mm. all down in front of him, and all over his boots. And he looked at him, and he thought, "Oh fuck, this is done. I'm, you know, this is it." Yeah. And then the guy fished out two dimes on his pocket and set him on the counter and said, "That was damn tasty. Give me two more." Huh. And that was the birth of the American hard taco. You're saying Taco Bell is the reason we have hard shell tacos. Correct. Wow. That's, they didn't, I didn't know that. Up until that point, at, at least to Glenn Bell, that is, the, that is the story. I appreciate the fact that Americans did decide to take something and deep fry it, and now it's better. <laughs> I'm just thinking of the, uh, the meme of, the, the, the one Taco Bell meme, where it's like you'll go to Taco Bell at like, I don't know, like 11, 12 or night, and you just see people of all different stripes in line to get tacos at Taco Bell, and it's like, Taco Bell's the great uniter. I would just like to point out that Taco Bell was launched in California, not the South, and it was a Californian company that came up with the idea to deep fry something and sell it to the masses. Are you upset? At <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just it's trying to legacy. say it's not just the South that thinks we should deep fry everything. No, 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 no. That's America. All of America. Yeah, that's does. an American thing. Yeah. The South just gets the most heat for it because we're all trying to put our blame somewhere else for why we're so fat. Oh, no, 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 no. Hey, Are that's fair. We earned it. <laughs> I thought it was the Midwest that produced the deep fried butter. That That's just a whole other level of culinary perversion. <laughs> I thought the, me the Midwest was all about deep frying and cheese. Yeah. They'll deep fry their own fucking leg if they get the yeah. chance. God, it's so good, though. I can't, I can't help it. I occasionally have deep fry nights. I bet you Jeff Dahmer like people deep fried. Like, fuck. No. <laughs> oh, deep fried cheese curds. Oh, is it too soon mm. for Jeff Dahmer dokes? <laughs> no. I mean, personally, this morning, I cooked some hickory bacon, used the grease to fry up some tears. That sounds real good. Mm -hmm. I actually, yeah. um, 
the the location redacted where I live, we have a local uh, type of bologna that's really good. And I usually like to fry that up with eggs, which, you know, most of the time when you think of bologna, you don't think it would fit good with it. But this stuff, it's like a smoked bologna. It is the best omelet to make that with. Is it spelled O-S-C-A-R? No, we don't eat that fucking Soylent <laughs> Green shit here. That, that, that is like the pink slime, like molded and pressed into cylinders. So since we're getting into the things... Wait, that... wait, wait. Is it the clown bologna? Clown bologna? It tastes me funny. Per- me personally, where I like to really experiment, where I like to, to really enjoy cooking, is the grill. I fucking love my charcoal grill. I don't have a grill. I live in an apartment. I own a propane grill for the odd occasion that the kids want just basic hamburgers or hot dogs because it's quick oh, look and at simple. me. I'm so bougie. I have a propane grill and a, a place where I can grill. But I lo- look, I live in the country, dude. I have a back deck. No, I, I I'm can. not even hating. I wish I could. I can't have a propane grill in an apartment. But, Are you kidding me? Oh, no. Uh, the people before me did. <laughs> There's, you can see the marks on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I, I have a Weber kettle, and I fucking love to grill. And I try to do it at least once a week. And, and you know, I have family members who will ask me, it's like, why do you, why do you go charcoal? You've got a, you have a propane grill. I love the ritual of it, the preparing of the charcoal, setting it up, figuring out how much do I need, how fast do I need to cook, do, what temperature do I need to cook? Do I want to cook low? Do I want to cook hot? Do I want to cook direct heat? Do I want to cook indirect heat? And, w- and it all, of course, depends on what kind of meat am I cooking. Am I cooking a steak? In which case, I'm going to use the reverse sear method. Am I cooking ribs low and slow? Am I cooking pork? In which case, it's going to be a mixture of indirect. Am I cooking chicken? It's going to be mostly direct. Am I going to be cooking some pork belly meat candy? That's ultra low and slow. I just love the ritual of setting it up putting it out, sitting by the grill, having an adult beverage or two while you're monitoring the cook, while you're using the thermometer to make sure you're meeting that maximum perfect internal temperature. That's my jam. And I have watched God knows how many hours of YouTube videos of pit masters and other grill aficionados to try to master and figure out the most perfect methodology of cooking. But even with all of that, I cook the way I want. I cook to my taste. And if other people don't appreciate that, I don't care. I enjoy it. There is a fun therapeutic ritual to, when it comes to cooking that I totally agree with you there. I don't. <laughs> Sorry. I, I understand why you like it. It is not That method is not for me. It's not an everyday thing. Like no, I don't no, no, come no, home no. from work on a work day like, oh, I'm no. going to cook an elaborate meal. Like No, to me... Um, the important thing is I, I like my spices. That is my jam. The spice must flow. I have three cabinets full of spices and a spice rack on the side for immediate spice needs. That is what I jam with. That's fair. I get, I completely get that. I don't have that because I'm a simple, simple man with very simple taste, but I completely understand that. Yeah, and I understand why you like it your way, too. I'm not giving shit over that. No, I, I have been that guy. Like, I have had that, like, I must have all the spices and all the things, so if there's something that I wish to cook or something or a recipe that I come upon, I have all that I need to make it. Yeah. 
There is no that. guesswork. You just you just go. I have had that both in Spice Rack and Liquor Cabinet. I mean, Liquor Cabinet is a bit different for me because I don't drink. So I do have uh, some Shaoxing wine and some a mixed red wine just for whenever I needed it. But a red wine is very good for marinating steak. I cook with yes. alcohol and occasionally add it in. Exactly. <laughs> hey, Straw, I have a question. Since you're out in the great wastes of America. <laughs> is that offensive? <laughs> I don't mean it as that. I don't mean it as such. I mean, the great, I the great over open, the Midwest. The great open spaces. I'm going to say this. Have you ever had. I can understand why New Vegas was there. Have you had elk? Ooh. Elk is delicious. Uh, yeah. I mean, I actually turned to German. Was that something I did? Yeah, elk. Yeah, the um, ones who don't fall off and are just there. Yeah. So I. I had a coworker years ago whose son took their dad out to, I want to say it was North Dakota, and they went elk hunting. And it was one of those things, kind of like how you go fishing uh, out there, where whatever you cook or catch, kill, shoot, whatever, they will clean, package, and ship back home for you. And so they shot and killed a couple of elk. And so she brought some to work and shared it with, with the rest of us. And so I had this nice little steak of elk. It was so red. It was almost a dark purple. My God. And it grilled up just like a steak. And it was a little tough, but it had such an interesting flavor. It was, it was just, I, The closest thing I can relate it to is venison, but it was different. I mean, technically, those... Both animals do share a genetic history, I think, and the fact that due to due to them being domesticated for that's how unlike cats and pigs and what have you, they don't have all that, so gaminess is pretty good throughout. Hmm. The best chili I've ever had in my life was some deer chili my uncle made. Oh, deer is delicious, man. I don't know what he did. I don't know how he prepared it, but hands down, best chili I've ever had in my life. I could say the, the, I've, well, I've gone deer hunting, but the closest I got to bagging a deer was hitting one with my car. But I will say, <laughs> deer, uh, deer is look, delicious. Look, man, people uh, where I live, they'll still eat that. No, that's my one regret. It's like, I hit that deer, and it's like, I should have taken that somewhere to get it. <laughs> it didn't go very far. It was like in the next. That's not a good like, thing. Look, it's man, it's fast thing. food, all right? <laughs> so the only experience I have with, with deer is the two or three times my dad went deer hunting as a kid because growing up in the South, you were expected to go deer hunting, even though I didn't want to kill a deer. They're beautiful. Sitting out in, you know, the rain and the cold and not seeing shit. But I was probably in my mid-20s, and I was driving along, and nothing but pastures, hey, Tink, on both sides of the of the road, and this fucking deer comes bounding out of the pasture with making a beeline to my car, I come to a complete stop, and the fucking deer runs directly into my car, <laughs> bangs off the of the side panel, and then gets up, staggered, and then runs off. And I'm like, "What the fuck, dude? You had you had the rest of the road. You had to run into my goddamn car." Oh, no. That that sounds like deer. The the deer I hit. I was driving to work, right, and I live in an area where deer tend to cross the road a lot. And as I'm driving, I see a deer run out in the road and I hit my brakes and I stop. 
And the deer just stops there for a second and keeps going. I was like, all right. So I start speeding up again. And my stupid ass forgot the unspoken rule if there's always more than one deer. And as I'm yeah. driving, a deer runs across the road and collides with my door, which kills it. It runs off like, I don't know, maybe a yard or two and then dies in the, like, the house that's right across the road. Which I wish I would have known that because I would have gone over and kicked it like, look what you did to my fucking car. Because it fucked the door up and had to get it replaced. <laughs> but, yeah, deer, deer are fucking stupid animals, I just want to oh, say. Yeah. I used to work two jobs. And my early morning job was at uh, UPS doing what they call preload. Which means you unload the tractor trailers and then separate it and then load up the package cars to go out for delivery. So it's about 2.33 in the morning. And I'm driving down a, a highway in rural Georgia, and I have no fucking idea what it is, but suddenly this gray lump of hair comes bounding across the highway, and I just slam right into it with my car. Well, it bounces off, and I just keep going because it's 3 o'clock in the morning, and I'm tired, and I gotta get to work. But it's not until later I realized what this was. It was a fucking coyote. Oh, because they think there's just hair, there's blood, you know, the, the car is fine. It's just messy. Yeah, I had to pick up a dead deer once. That was a fun morning. Yeah. And then there's the time I got to, I left work and I'm walking out and there's a, a bird lodged in the grill of my car. Like, it's almost like it was trying to fly away from me as fast as it could, but it wasn't going fast enough. And it's just lodged with this expression on its face like, I'm almost about to make it. Like, it almost looked like a hood ornament. Dude, that happened to me, too. I was driving to work the one day, and a bird flew across my road. And I didn't see it fly from the other end. So I was like, I wonder if I hit that. Well, fast forward, like, two hours at work, and I'm at a break. And somebody's like, hey, you've got a dead bird hanging from your car. And... It was hanging there like head stuck in the car, just dangling. The bird that I had hit. See, mine was the reverse. This podcast brought to you by PETA. Mine was ass first stuck into it. Like, its head was going the other way. Like, he was trying to fly away. It just couldn't get get enough, you know, speed. Birds, uh, turns out, car faster than bird. Confucius said. (laughs) Griglek fly real bird. (laughs) The amount of times when I'm going down a road and the birds are like oh outrun you to outrun it I, in a single fucking direction and think go left or go right and eventually they think hmm or left or whatever the fuck yeah it sounds like birds yeah except crows crows are very smart they are so back to food oh yeah we were talking about food <laughs> what's the most cursed thing you guys have made food was all right, no, 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 not, not, not what we've made. What are the worst foods in the world? Oh God, I have two pickled goat testicles. Probably no, 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 no. There's the no. cheese. There's the French the... cheese. Okay, hold on. There's the cheese. There's the cheese, which there's a French is cheese, which has maggots inside of it that are. Alive. It's not French. It's Italian. That, that that's Italian. It's Italian. Okay. There's an Italian cheese. That is illegal. It's illegal. However, it's illegal in America. Good. No, no, no. It's illegal. It's illegal there. Really? However, everybody, if you go to any little town, 
down and ask for it. Somebody knows somebody that has some. I've mm. read up on it. It is okay. called, let me do my best, Kasu Marzu. It is a soft, giant, like wheel of cheese, semi-soft, that is allowed to putrefy until putrefy maggots... Is a very apt way of saying that. Until maggots grow in it. And then oh. it will be consumed. And the point is, while you take out handfuls or spoonfuls, the maggots will run away from it. But it is the putrefaction that the maggots cause, based upon the, the enzymes that they're excreting, that is breaking down, it, that creates this that is fucking extremely pungent flavored, but is, it is also considered a delicacy. Again, it is illegal, and yet it is something they still do. And it makes me want to retch to think about it. But the number one most cursed food in the world is called, and I'm I'm going to. Is it? Are you talking about the uh, the fish in a can? Yes. Yeah. It is called. It is a. I think it's Finnish. It's called surstroming. It is a fermented fish <sighs> in a can that is horrific smelling. It is so bad. What? Oh yeah. There was a there was a legal case brought by residents of an apartment building against a fellow resident who opened a can of it in a stairwell in their apartment. And it was so bad that at the hearing of the legal case, of the legal action they brought against him, they brought a can of this into the courtroom and cracked it open just a little bit. And after five minutes, the judge ruled for the plaintiffs. No, thank you. I have seen someone say, oh, no, 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 no. You guys are opening it wrong, which is... What? Yes. So the proper method for opening one of these cans is, first of all, you get a bucket with water, and you put it like 20, 15 or so feet away. You open it underneath the underwater, and then you pull the fish out, and then you can eat the fish. See, if that's how you have to eat it, yes, that's yes. that's no. not something meant to be eaten. <laughs> but the arg his argument was, no, 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 no. It's the the juice on the outside that's really bad and stinky and gross. The fish is fine. It's not that bad. <laughs> and he goes, see, I'm going to have some right now. Munch, munch, munch. And he ate it. But he had to leave, basically, politely told to leave to go get the get the rest of it. Do you want to know some uh, honorable mentions for some of the worst smelling and uh, cursed foods? Durians. Well, that goes without saying. There's a lot that could probably fit that list. Durian's not that bad. It's not good, but you can get used to it. There is a traditional Alaskan slash Canadian native dish called jellied moose nose. Oh, no. And it's exactly what it sounds like. Hmm. Well, you hear about the whole native food things like with the uh, uh, australian aborigines and what have you most of that is about not starving no it is a poverty food and it's important to keep that in mind for a lot of these things yeah the thing is food is that well with the especially with the australian aborigines is that some of these are poisonous up to a specific time zone or time after it's been made, and you have to eat it then and there, or else it'll go back poisonous. Sounds safe. It's not, but... Of course it's not. We do that with uh, lobster. 
right? Lobster's not poisonous. If it's been sitting out for more than a day. Red lobster? The lobster was originally considered a trash food. It was yeah. only eaten and consumed by poor people. And it wasn't until, uh, hey, Tink, that... There was cat. No, she's, I'm sorry, she is so loud. Oh, no, 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 no. She's fine. She's, she's, she's our Mr. Yeah, she's our Mr. Strain. But it wasn't until the rich people figured out what they were missing that lobster became desired. From what I understand, what they did initially with lobster is they just put it in a mortar and pestle and then served it up. Yeah. So it was one part, they were just like fucking up how to eat it. It's like eating the carapace of a bug. Yeah, no, it's not going to go good. Yeah, you're basically yeah. eating a bug. So there's a traditional uh, native Alaskan dish where, you know, salmon or a common fish in the area and the rivers and streams and stuff where you would catch the salmon, you would eat the salmon, but then you would cut off all the heads and then you would bury it in a, uh, a canvas bag or something and leave it for several weeks to a month or two to ferment. And then you would come back, dig it back up, and then create a soup from this and eat it. Hmm. Hmm. That sounds a bit similar to... Um, there's like a sauce, a Mediterranean fish sauce. <laughs> oh, fish sauce is delicious. I love fish sauce. It's great. Oh, yeah. It's great for yourself. It, it smells like ass, but it's really good That's to... That's not like selling me on the fish sauce, Jay. After they put the lid on the sh on the fish, let it heat up a while, and then take the lid off, and then the fermentation of the fish it smelled and tasted good to them. So they added a shit ton of it to dishes and what have you. I'm not that keen on it. So in English, we have a bit of a failure with language. Uh, just like the same way we don't have a good word for uh, umami. Uh, there's another flavor that we don't have a good word for, which is like funk, like a, a gaminess or a fishiness. Because we can say this thing is fishy, but we can't say this is has a small amount of fishy flavor to it. That's not a typical English-speaking way. Fish sauce is uh, that fishiness, that funk, that you can apply at like, it's a smaller amount. Yeah, it's a amount. Yes. So for a lot of Thai food, it's a lot of balancing all of the flavors, one of which is funk. Mm. So fish sauce is not, you don't want to just straight drink this stuff. <laughs> you would die. Like, Ugh. or you would want to die. But I want to die just thinking about it. Yeah. But for example, I made a nut soup recently where it was a lot, it was very sweet. It was, it had a, a very strong peanut flavor. So we put some uh, cardamom in to like warm it up to make it more of a like an, a nicer soup and we used fish sauce to help balance it out and it worked perfectly mm. i'll try it yeah it's wonderful it was really good so i have a question okay a part of my childhood i have found in my very limited travels apparently is an extremely regional dish but have any of you heard Chicken mull. No. Can't say that I have. That sounds like some voodoo shit. Alright. So, chicken mull. Chicken mull. M-U-L-L. -L, chicken mull. Chicken mull is a traditional dish. My favorite Star Wars villain. From North Carolina, upstate South Carolina. And, and Georgia. Georgia. And North Korea. It is a type of stew consisting of a parboiled whole chicken. 
in a cream or milk-based broth, butter, and seasoned with salt, pepper, and other ingredients. Traditionally served in the late fall and winter months. So imagine this. You take a chicken, you boil the whole goddamn thing, then you strip all the meat off of it. You throw out uh, the bones, you throw out the, the sinewy bits, the what have you. A stock, you mean? Yeah, you just take all the, the meat and you just kind of grind it up into little bits. And then you boil it with like a little bit of milk and butter with some salt and some pepper until you form up this kind of yellowy paste, liquidy pasty type soup, right? It smells god-awful, but throw in a little hot sauce, some onions, and about a half a pack of crashed salting crackers, and my god, it is the food of heaven. That is my childhood. Like haggis. Growing up, every church in my community, at least once a year, would have a sale where they would have chicken mole where they would make just gallons and gallons and gallons of chicken mull, and you would buy it by the quart, usually 4 to $5 a quart. Again, it looks like, imagine if you took liquid paste and plaster of Paris. It's just this gray kind of liquidy goop, and it smells awful. You're not really selling this very hard. No, no, no. No, no I'm telling you, it smells terrible. And it does not look appealing. <laughs> but it is delicious. And apparently, it is something so very narrow and niche to this area of the country that I grew up that nobody else has heard of it. Listen, the thing about smell and texture is sometimes they are deciding factors as to whether or not I want to put something in my mouth. I mean, dog shit could taste delicious, but I'm not about to stick that in my mouth. Believe you me, I don't blame you, but... Like, I didn't try crab cakes until I was in my 20s, man. I am telling you, if I had a, a quart of chicken mull, hot and steaming and ready to eat, I would take an entire sleeve of salting crackers, crush them up, pour them in, throw a little hot sauce on this, and I would eat it until I could burst. Because it's that good. There's a lot of steps involved in there between you, like, consuming it and receiving. Like, th like there's almost, like, the only places that even sell it around here are, like, little hole-in-the-wall barbecue joints. Ugh. I mean, I've eaten pork rinds, so I don't know if I could talk a lot of shit. Hey, 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 hey. There is nothing wrong with pork rinds. Pork rinds are, like, sex in your oh, mouth. Oh, I'm, I'm not saying that. I used to eat a lot of those. My girlfriend doesn't like that I eat them, but... I mean, okay. My uh, fiance will eat. Uh, actually, no. I probably should not call her out for her food crimes. <laughs> no, do it. It's funny. <laughs> no, no, she would yell at me. So I will retract my. Considering statement. how she was in our Delta Green game last night with OSHA, I can only imagine. That is fair. <laughs> you do have to live with her. Yes. Yeah. You know what I found interesting is uh, my wife and I have been married about a little over nine years now. She's originally from upstate New York. Her whole family is originally from upstate New York. Her family is Irish, Irish heritage. Mm -hmm. But there is something about just being from that region. Most of the dishes that she cooks, as far as traditional like meals, are very Italian. My significant other is uh, has Irish heritage as well, and they do produce a they do eat a lot of mashed potatoes, that sort of thing. Past that, not particularly a lot of traditional Irish stuff that I've noticed. 
We do have some Irish curry, though, which is actually good. Irish curry? Yes. What is that like? Okay, I, I need to know this thing. This is something that interests me. One of my, uh, my bad times is I like different curries, and uh, the British culture has done a very good thing of spreading different curries out. Like the f- idea of a curry flavor. So Irish curry is the Irish's interpretation of British curry, just like how Japanese curry is the Japanese interpretation of British curry. Hmm. And uh. there is a few brands that will probably get somebody upset, but I we prefer Irish curry over the golden curry from Japan. We have tried both of them, and we said we would rather have this Irish curry. Hmm. I would like to try this. Here, speak into this potted plant. <laughs> no, I don't know. I I can't say I've done a lot with curry. It's McDowell's Irish curry, proudly made in Ireland. And we get it by the can full. If you can post a link to that, I will absolutely try that. Because that you have piqued my curiosity, sir. If you can find a picture of the description, it is the wildest fuck. Actually, give me a second. I'm going to go grab my can and read to you the uh, instructions for using it. Because, <laughs> holy shit. So we have different types of descriptions for the sauce bit. Would you like the low-tech or the high-tech version? Let's start with low-tech and then the high-tech. Okay, low-tech. Put eight tablespoons, half of this tub, in a saucepan. Pour in 590 milliliters of warm water and whisk it till it's smooth. Stick it in the the hob and stir till it's boiling. Then That's simmer for five said. minutes. What? I said stick it in the hob till it boils. It, it says hob. Said. Oh. Then simmer for five minutes and give it the odd stir. That's it. Now get it on your chips, chicken, wedges, or whatever you're having yourself. That is the description that they gave on it. You have sold a tub of Irish curry, sir. This, the hot sauce version, the hotter version, actually good. I prefer it. It's, it's still white people spicy, but yeah. Since we're talking about obscure... Um, this is not obscure. To be clear, we got this from her uncle. Okay, I'm speaking of obscure in as far as the, the general public sense of, of yeah. the U.S. Have any of you tried the traditional HP sauce? HP? No. Yes. Oh, I've not. I've not gone around to get the brown sauce. No, I can't say Yes, the HP brown sauce. I'm not going to lie. Anytime there is a sauce with a color descriptor, I'm not interested. Just gravy. Let me tell you. Fancy gravy. That's all it is. (laughs) I am not a big sauce guy, but if you're going to have a brat or an Italian sausage or anything with a spiciest sausage flavor, Fucking HP sauce is the way to go. Why? What is it? What does it taste like? It's oh, I think fucking. It is kind. <laughs> it's kind of like a cross between Heinz Fifty Seven and A One sauce. It's closer to the A One sauce, but it's just good. And you can't get it here in the states. It has to be imported, and it's fucking expensive, but it's good. What does it taste like? It's kind of like a spicier A1 sauce. I don't think I've ever eaten A1 sauce. That's fair. I actually do make uh, steak sauces when I make steak, occasionally. I don't make steak that much because of money reasons. 
Because it's just fucking expensive. I have a shit ton of steak in my fridge. Because we grow raised cows. But I do make uh, steak sauces manually, I guess, is the, the term for it. But yeah, no, I've never actually eaten A1 or any sort of official steak sauce. I think I've gotten yelled at by uh, some chefs for implying using steak sauce on their steaks. You and I have gone back and forth about your steak sauce. Mm-hmm. And particularly, you mentioned like a little bit of potato, a little bit of mushroom yeah. involved in your steak sauce. And to me, that is not traditional steak sauce. Okay. And the way that you describe it, I fucking want to eat your sauce. So, <laughs> God damn it. Okay, so... When I make steak, I fry it up on a cast iron, get it all as hot as I want. Then I baste it in butter, garlic, and rosemary just to finish off cooking the steak. Then I put it down. Then what's left is a bunch of fond with garlic, butter, and a bunch of other stuff. What I normally do, I deglaze with a little bit of red wine, which I'm using now. Very good. Then I put down some potatoes. Give it a bit of time, cover it, let it cook down until it's basically cooked most of the way, then throw down some button mushrooms on top of it, and then everything should be finished cooking. Then you got your cooled-off steak with the some mushrooms and potatoes. It is unbelievably good. And I am there for it. I'm not a big believer in, in traditional, like, table steak sauces myself. I think if a steak is properly prepared, it does not need anything in addition. But I am deeply intrigued by your description of your mushrooms and uh, tomato sauce. Or uh, yeah. potato sauce, rather. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't have to put the sauce on the steak, but you put it on the same plate. So some of that sauce is going to go along the bottom of the steak. Mm. I'm going to just do Hans 57, because that's the American way. You shut your whore mouth. Hey, you, you can say all the shit you want, but Hans 57 is real good on steak. Heinz 57 is really good on cube steak, and it's also good if you mix it with like a traditional barbecue sauce on chicken. Ooh, that does sound really tasty. I'd totally mess with that. Mm. So it looks like uh, Straw has been lost to the void. Straw, very upset at my steak description. He quit in protest. Yeah. (laughs) How dare you? My steak's better. I do actually find that interesting how just as a cultural thing, Americans, because we, we are all Americans here, we all consider our cooking prowess entirely based on how we can cook steak or like cook meat. American way. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, it took me a bit to realize like, oh, you don't have to cook meat well in order to be a good cook. But also, I want my good meat. <laughs> so I don't care. Question. Yeah. Just, 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 just a quick. I'm not no judgment. Mm-hmm. Steak doneness. I'm a medium rare guy, leaning closer to rare. How say you? I'm more rare normally, uh, more so burgers, but um, I don't mind pink in my steak. My steaks that I made uh, last night, they were pretty pink in the middle. So um, I go medium rare when I'm ordering, when I'm cooking. I don't care. My fiance, she likes her steaks rare. So I will, I will hope for that, but you get what you get. See, the, growing up, my dad cooked everything medium, but mm-hmm. I like, you know, I like the pink in the middle. It doesn't, and I'll even eat it rare, but medium rare, it's juicy, it's flavorful, it's softer, 
it just it just it's just to me that's where the flavor is it's medium rare so okay this is where we will start disagreeing because to me the inside of a steak is not as important as the crust i like a very good crust on my steak why not both you can yes. have both. Yes, you can have you absolutely both. Absolutely can have both. And I, I am 1,000% yeah. in agreement with you. That is where I struggle with the grill, is achieving that proper balance between a really good crust and, yeah. achieve, and medium rare. It is a balance and it is a learning curve. That is where the pan is superior. Agreed. Yeah, because I can get a good crust. I think a crust is more important than an interior. And we can disagree on that part, but that's just what I like. I don't disagree yep. with you. A good crust, even if you slightly overcook and you're more into the medium to medium well, yeah. a really good crust can make up for that. Yes. But if you don't have as good a crust, but you have a perfectly medium well cook or medium rare cook in the middle, I think that is also valid, depending on the cut of meat. Yeah. But I agree with you. A really good yep. crust is goes a long way. That is the more superior, like, you can only aim for one thing, and then you just got to accept the other thing. At least that's my opinion. Like, right. you aim for one thing, and then you go, well, okay, I guess I'll make sure that we got this. And see, that that's where I, that's the part about the ritual that I enjoy with grilling, is figuring out. I prefer, personally, the reverse sear method. Once I get my coal, I use a little chimney stacker to get my coals going. And when it gets to that point where they're just about ready to pour out, I'll set my grill top on top of that and I'll sear this my steak. Oh, on the chimney? On the chimney, directly on top mm. of it for about a minute to a minute and a half each side. So I get a nice good char. And then I'll pour out my coals and then I will indirect cook the steak until it reaches the okay. proper and proper temperature. Oh, I realize you're going to hate me. You're mm. going to disagree with my cooking style forever. I will use liquid smoke to get the same exact effect. No, no, no. I don't disagree <laughs> with you. Okay. That's fine. Okay. It, it, it is all about <laughs> achieving the right flavor and the right texture. Yeah. And if you can master that with liquid smoke, all the more better. Okay. I am not judging you. Okay. One One percent. Not at all. I'm just trying, I'm still, I am on like a three-year journey right now to master that exact right time, temperature, crust, what have you. And what made it more difficult is I generally buy my steaks on the thicker side between two and three inches. And so that has a lot to do with how you balance that crust versus internal temperature. But no, I, no judgment here. Okay. I don't mind also just flipping a steak forever until you get it perfect. That's also a uh, something not everyone agrees with. But I think it's fine to just flip it until you know what it is. Because a crust isn't formed by... A crust isn't formed between the, the meat and the pan. It is determined by, the, uh, by everything else. I'm with you. I'm fine with that. So, as, long okay. as, you get the, as long as you get the result, how you get there doesn't matter. Okay. I know a lot of people are very picky when it comes to steak. And that's fair. And valid. Or we could really go down the rabbit hole and start discussing ribs. Oh, oh God. I, we're going to be here all night. I just slow cook room. I do not have the space or anything else to do anything else. 
It's just slow cooking, and then we have pulled pork. See, to me, there are a few things better than putting a rack of pork ribs on the grill and cooking them low and slow for about four to five hours. Just about somewhere between 250 and 280 degrees, just slow cooking and letting those that meat draw back on the bone. You get that nice smoke ring on them. There's nothing like it. But I also enjoy some beef ribs. Cut some thick cut short rib beef ribs. Do the same. Cook them low and slow until they get that nice thick beefy flavor. But they're so damn tender they just melt in your mouth. Sounds real nice. Halion, you've mentioned this before or a lot where you try and hide your uh, internal accent, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> that is a coming out extremely hard right now. Your fingers that come out during the grilling. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. Well, it comes out when it's all about the blue smoke. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> My inner ray. Yeah. <laughs> if you will. <laughs> that's when you're like, oh, no, no, no. Everything changes now. We need to talk about exactly why it's good. Yeah, I, I am very much 75% redneck. And so <laughs> sometimes it you just can't help it. It just comes out. <laughs> it's it's just, just certain topics, it man. It's just for the, that little bit where it's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand why I like it. Uh, I appreciate. I, I, I legitimately appreciate you calling me on that. No, no, no. That, I'm not giving you shit over it. No, no, no. I, I and I funny, don't take but... it that way. Yep. I appreciate okay. it. Uh, that is my heritage. Thank you very much. <laughs> Four smoked meats. Four scored seven <laughs> smoked meats ago. I just think back to my dad. You know, holidays were really important with my family. Like for Christmas. Christmas Day, or, or let's just say Thanksgiving, rather. Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving for lunch was always spent at my dad's parents. Every year, always, without fail, my dad's parents, my mama and my papa, went over there, had a big spread, stuffed ourselves silly, then went home, and then my dad would have been working all night, smoking a couple of turkeys. And then for dinner, we would travel the 100, 150 yards or so down the road to my mom's parents' house, Pop and Granny. And my mom's family, which was extensive, she had four brothers, three sisters. I had 21 cousins on that side. We would all gather, all of us, except for you know whichever family was mad at another family at that mm -hmm. year, which was at any given time, you know, varied. <laughs> I guess in game. And so we would all get together, and again, we would eat. And it kind of was the same thing. Everybody kind of fell into their thing. You know, this person was bringing the stuffing. This person was bringing a roll. This person was bringing this casserole. This person was bringing this macaroni and cheese casserole. You know, we brought the, the turkey. And my dad would always make a homemade chocolate cake. Because somewhere around Thanksgiving was my Uncle Eddie's birthday. And so he would make a chocolate cake for my Uncle Eddie. And it's just so all those memories are tied so directly to cooking around the holidays and family. And it's just, it's just so weird how tightly it comes together. 
No, I get that, man. Uh, my family's the same way. We have a big holiday uh, cooking every year, especially for Christmas, which um, this year it's going to be kind of bittersweet because, I mean, we're all getting together for Christmas, but my uncle who recently passed, he was the one that always would prepare like the ham and the turkey in the kitchen. Mm. So, I'm sorry, you know, man. The, no, thank you. You know, it's... It's one of those things, you know, that's one of those traditions that you don't really appreciate until it's gone. You know, having a dedicated person that prepares things. It's yeah. kind of why I like to cook for my girlfriend and I. Maybe not always breakfast, because she's not a breakfast person, but I like to cook dinner for us as often as I can. Because it feels nice preparing it for someone else. It's a labor of love in a lot of ways. Yeah, to me, cooking is more you better to cook for someone else rather than just yourself. Food is love. Yeah. Sharing food is an expression of love. I said it in the opening. Absolutely. Think about all the meals you cooked by yourself when you were, you know, in college or whatever. I made fucking bags of rice and chicken nuggies for dinner sometimes. A lot different now. Well, I spend most of my meals eating alone. And some of the comfort and enjoyment that I take is in cooking, a, you know, a big, amount of food, knowing I'm going to eat on it for two, three, four meals, but still just, it's the ritual of it. There is something satisfying about going through the process of preparing it, even cleaning up after it. There's just, there's something that satisfies that monkey lizard part of your brain. To me, it's, it's experimenting. It's going, I heard about this meat dish where you cut up like five onions you slow cook them down, and then you start slow cooking in some steak, and you just get this real thick oniony meat sauce at the end of it. I love a good thick sauce. Yeah. Uh, and also... Isolate that audio. <laughs> uh, to me, food is tied to love, but to me personally, I think food is more tied culturally because I like to learn about things. I like to learn about people. If I can go to someone and ask you and ask them, hey, what are you eating normally? Like, what's your day-to-day -day weekly meals? That is a immediate cultural exchange, basically, where I can go, mm -hmm. oh, I've never heard of this. Absolutely. What's Ethiopian food like? Let me try this. Oh, oh so my God. Ethiopian <laughs> is so good. Yeah. I've never tried it. I would totally try it, though. It's. I think we've talked about this. We have. It's a... Um, it is a group sharing meal where uh, you have a big old plate in the middle and then with a bunch of different like flavored goops that you take a bit of the, the bread, the plating, you rip it up. Injera bread. Yes. And then you scoop it up and you eat it. And everyone... That sounds really interesting. Yeah. And it's just a cultural event where it's just everyone gather around and eat some food. It's interesting you bring up the cultural aspect because it's, I, I think you've really onto something there. Just one example I was thinking of, it's like, think of the hamburger. It's a German thing. Like hamburger is named after the city of Hamburg. And it's something that most people across the world would generally associate with Americans these days because it's something that was brought over here and through time has changed from what it originally was, which I'm sure is something completely different to the modern idea of what a hamburger is. That is, it just shows how food can transcend cultural boundaries in a lot of ways. So, you know, something that ends up 
one way in one place could change completely in another. Or you can just go, hey, I heard about this weird food about that you guys use. I would like to learn yeah. more. Can you tell me about this? And then, because if someone asks me, hey, why do Americans like steak so much? <laughs> why, let's go sit down for 20 minutes. Yeah. So we're watching a, um, a Netflix uh, show called The Number One Korean. And one of the, the episodes, they mentioned bamboo salt, which is when you take a bamboo shoot and you pack it full of salt and then burn it. And that is a apparently a pretty common type of salt for Korean people to just have on their dishes or for ritual stuff. And everything that I find online in English, they have decided to like mythologize it a little bit. And they're acting like, oh, it's this magical special salt cure from the far east of Korea. But I just want to talk to someone and ask, what is this thing? How do you guys actually use this? Because it's not clear. And being able to just reach out and say, what's going on with your guys' culture over here? Why do you guys do this? It's very useful and interesting thing. And I just love learning about that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's... There's a lot of different foods that, you know, I've been interested to try that are, I never knew what Thai food was. And then when I tried it, I was like, this is great. Oh, yeah. It, Thai food is amazing. Food, food is a cultural ambassador all its own, really. And it's interesting how food, not as just as a culture, but as a, as a historical, it is a touchstone thing. Are you familiar with the origins of the term the upper crust? No. Well, you know, we all associate the term the upper crust to mean like the rich, the high, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the hierarchy. Well, the term came about from traditional, we'll say dark or middle ages, or let's just go back even to the beer halls or the, the great halls of the Nordic races, where you didn't have plates, you didn't have bowls. So what they would do is they would take great cuts of bread and they would lay it in front of you and then whatever meats or stews or what have you whatever food you were eating would just be ladled out upon this giant cut of bread in front of you and so you would just eat off of it and in the end you would just pick off pieces of the bread well the crust the upper parts of the bread and the bottom parts of the bread in particular but especially the upper parts would be reserved for the, the nobility the higher status individuals because what that would allow then is all the juices all the accoutrement would flow through the bread and then gather at the bottom rather than soaking into the table so that you would get all of the great flavors that you could kind of eat and enjoy at the end and so it was the upper crust the mundability the the higher status people that would have these better cuts of bread allowed to them interesting and that's where that term came from Okay. I like that. Very interesting. There's lots of things about food that have kind of interwoven their way into culture and, and things that we don't even think about today. Yeah. It does show how food is part of our culture. I mean, at the end of the day, everyone needs to eat at least once a day. Exactly. As, like, yeah. we're humans. Yeah, we, we want to eat. So it's going to be, most of society is for food. I would hope so. In terms of like the amount of jobs and everything, like most of is aiming towards food and 
food safety and yeah. selling food or producing food or this actually brings up a thought that i had earlier which i just remembered the idea of future food and one thing in particular that i've heard talked about as future food is the possibility of insects being a food staple in the future due to you know climate change population growth or what have you so my question to you guys is would you i will go through this one at a time because I, oh, man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. My opinion is a bit different than a lot of people's, which is I don't think that insects are the future because nobody wants to eat insects, right? What a surprise. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. Surprise, they're gross. Humans have evolved not to want to eat them. So the issue is, oh, you have to eat them because they're the only things that are going to be left. Not necessarily. Uh, we have enough technology for other things now. I don't necessarily agree with 3D printing, but cultural culture-grown meat, lab meat, yeah. that'll be... Oh, that'll be super Lab meat, easy. hydroponics. Yeah, that is somewhere that will take off first, I feel. Because if you can get ground beef... I think it already has, honestly. Uh, yeah, possibly. To some degree, to some yeah. degree. Not, not like widespread, necessarily. Yeah. But. You brought up future... What I'm assuming is, since you're talking about eating insects, you're talking about a, a post-apocalyptic type future, right? No, not necessarily no, that. Not just, post-apocalyptic. Right. No, not post-apocalyptic. I'm talking more right. of like... In 50 years, we're not going to have cows anymore, that sort of idea. Right, because of climate change, blah, blah, blah. Okay, yeah, yes. I, I think that's yep. going to change how we grow or cultivate Question. food. Question. Have either of you watched Snowpiercer, the movie? No. Uh, n- I think I've watched maybe 30 minutes. Okay, okay. I'm going to spoil something for you. Okay. It's the, the movie's been out for almost 10 goddamn years. So if you haven't seen it yeah, by yeah, now, yeah, that's okay. on you if I spoil it. All right. Uh-oh. So <laughs> it's, it's set in a post-apocalyptic future where it's essentially a constant Arctic winter, right? The only humans left are on this train called the Snowpiercer that is moving and it can't stop. If it stops, it's done, right? So it just has to keep moving. Well, the people at the back of the train are the super poor, the just the peasants, the just barely making it. And the further you move up the train, theoretically, the higher you move socially. Well, the people at the back, once a day, are given sustenance of a these little bricks of this brown, brownish, blackish, gelatinous substance is just kind of spit out into the car that they're in that they can consume that will sustain them. It's enough to eat. Hershey's. It's an MRE. Well, class warfare, blah, 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 blah. Yep. Long story Bad short. Times. The movie happens. Some of the people make their way up through the cars, right? And what they find out is that those bars are made up of nothing but thousands upon thousands of cockroaches that have been gathered from infesting the train and brought to this processing center where they are ground up and turned into this gelatinous jelly. Delicious. Seems kind of gross. You're welcome. Chicken nuggets. My opinion, for at least for the, the future of food, I think that we're going to see more non-meat additives inside of meat for, like, chicken nugget stuff. Mm-hmm. Because, like, soy, for example, I honestly like cooking with soy. Soy's not bad. 
No, 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 no. It requires like some tender love and care, but you can get it very good. I'm going to go out and on a uh, probably not unpopular limb, but the fucking Impossible Burger, and particularly the Impossible Whopper that Burger King sells, fucking delicious. Yeah, I've had bean burgers. They're pretty good. Oh, a, a, a spicy black bean burger? Goddamn delicious. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, to me, I could only tell a difference with the Impossible Burger by eating one, like taking a bite of one, taking a bite of a regular uh, Whopper, and then I could see a difference. Right. Yeah, there was nothing really noticeable. If you can get some meat with some non-meat that like mixes in with your ground beef, suddenly it's a dollar cheaper per pound. Suddenly people don't care anymore. Yeah. I guess the real question is how much meat can you take out before people have an issue with it? Yeah. Also with lab-grown meat, suddenly you can start doing some... I have a feeling no one will care about lab-grown meat as soon as it's cheaper than regular meat. Probably not, no. Yeah, once you can get lab-grown meat that looks and tastes like regular meat, and it's comparable... It tastes like ground beef. And comparable and cheaper in price, yeah. Yeah. Problem will be, you will always have the connoisseurs that want it to look like it and taste like it and look like it from purchase to plate. That will be the issue. But for the average consumer, no, I, I completely agree with you, Mr. Yeah. J. I think it, eventually we're going to see it's the additive, the, sub, the partial substitution that will be the, the wave of the future. Yeah, and I think a lot of like hydroponics things are going to play a big part into it because hydroponics is something you can do in a lot of places. Yeah, but the problem with hydroponics is you need water, and yeah. water is becoming a thing that we're having to seem to start having a problem with in, in a lot of areas. That, I mean, that's just a whole other topic, but I feel yeah. like it's, it has more to do with not necessarily a uh, lack of water, but access and um, how it's used, logistics and things. I think that's a big part of it as well. But Nestle? Yeah, that... Nestle. <laughs> okay, we have been going on for almost two hours now. Yeah, wow. We, this is our longest episode. Congrats yeah. to us. I am more than up for talking about this uh, some more. We can always talk about more specific details as well. I, food is a very broad topic, yeah. yes. Yeah. Because we can even just talk about recipes. Yeah. yeah. One last thing before we go. I, okay. I love how your girlfriend now, or your fiance knows now about um, Nanner Water beer, like I suggested. Oh, and... no, 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 no. She knew about that before. But now it's a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, just as a Justin thing, I don't suggest things like that I will do without passing it by her first because that's going to be like taking up some space and just being, so she already knew about it. And then she went, Oh no, if you make it, I'm going to try it. And I'm like, I'm not going to force you to, I'm not going to force you to try it or anything. She's like, no, I'm going to try it. She, what there's no way she would. The gauntlet has been thrown now. Yes. So, I've casually been wanting to make some hooch because apparently it's actually... Oh, man. Nanowater moonshine. <laughs> no, no, no. Moonshine is a distillate. You can just make hooch just as some boys sitting around. And it's fairly easy. You get a very clean bucket with a one-way valve. Then you just pour in the garbage, make sure it has enough sugar, and then pour in some yeast. Then you let it sit. Well, if you're going to make nanowater hooch... I will try it. Okay. I'm holding you to Nanner Water Hooch. 
This I is am gonna be a, down for some Nana Water Hooch. Our first meetup. We're gonna try <laughs> shit. Are you are you talking a banana um banana booze or yes. no 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 Nana Water? So okay, Nana Water is when you take the um oh no the, soap the peels. peels. Oh no! Oh no! Yeah. The internet. <laughs> oh no! He's, he's gone again. <laughs> oh, he's back. <laughs> anyway, you're in the matrix. So, nanner water is when you cook down, uh, in a slow cooker, banana peels into a black, disgusting sludge. Why? That's putting it mild. Because... Because someone on the internet suggested it, and then Bionic Babe made it. Square, dude. And then said it was very bad. So now I want to make hooch out of it. Is that how Bionic got into the Legion? It's like, I made the nanner water. Yeah! Basically. She's in it now. She's She's great. No, I mean, good on her, but I watched the video, I'm like, my god, that crockpot is probably ruined. Yeah. <laughs> Personally, I would just use the bananas, like, why banana peel? Because it's bad. It's part of the meme. You want to do the bad thing because it's bad. Yeah. No, no, I... You think we're making now, this because we want to? No! No, it's been a bad challenge. Now, growing up, every summer, we would get together as a family at, at my grandparents' house. And we would, at least once or twice, everybody would bring their own little crock of uh, homemade ice cream. Mm-hmm. And my favorite, the one that I remember, is homemade banana ice cream. Now, I'm not a fan of bananas, mind you. Mm. Particularly the artificial banana flavor. I like the artificial. But homemade banana ice cream is goddamn delicious. I actually like the flavor of fake or the um, old banana uh, flavors. I actually like it. I know I'm in the minority, but no, I really like it. I also like black licorice, so. Oh, here's the fun fact about those artificial banana f- taste. That's the true bananas, just um, they're from an extinct form of bananas. Oh, man, if we could get into banana lore a whole other episode. Yeah, I mean, it occurred due to the fact that there was, well, a singular type of banana that was made. And it tasted like that candy. However, here's a bit of an issue here. You know how monocultures are a bad idea, or a monocrop is a really, really bad idea? Yeah. Um, that's why. Because, like the whole potato famine, and the with the bananas, they got hit by a fungus that just wiped them out. Like, they're no longer ah, here. Yeah, I see. They are extinct. Fun times. More of the story is diversify your portfolio. Yeah, for example, uh, Russell sprouts and kale are the same uh, plant. No kidding. Yeah, they just did a lot of botany shenanigans. Huh. I love Brussels sprouts. Oh, yeah, they're delicious. Especially yeah. when you cut them in half, add a little bit of vinegar. Some bacon bits. Maybe. Oh, yeah, bacon bits, some sugar. We're actually a recent convert to kale because... Kale in soup is actually wonderful. Your kaleans. And it blew my mind the first time that we had straight kale in a soup. Because, mm. you know, it's kale. You don't really want to eat it. But then you do. And it's because of the way that the leaves are, mm-hmm. they start bunching up. And then when you eat it from the soup, it tastes juicy because it's just bringing up broth with it. Mm. I mean, you could technically cook anything. And figure a way to make something taste good, not always should. And, well, I mean, that's why I like 
multiple food types is because it's because some good for us here in Wyoming doesn't mean it's good for you guys down wherever you are. Yeah, cultural colon is a real thing. Yeah. Why you can't drink the water everywhere. Yeah, Oregon Trail wasn't wrong. I mean, it's a mix of bacterias you're not used to, and the fact that, well, unboiled water kills you. Yeah, it'll happen. Oh, raw water was a very funny thing that people did yeah. for a while. Yeah. Do what? Yeah. It was a um a white people, a California rich people thing. A what what now? Raw water. That sounds like a California thing. Yeah, it was a, a fun trend like four years ago. Mm. <laughs> just like, ah. no, thank you. <laughs> it, the internet ruins everything. Just like dysentery. It did not last long because God. people did not like <laughs> what it did to their yeah. bodies. Oh, it made them shit themselves? Yeah, it was bad. Oops. Yeah, that sounds uh, like an awful time. Oh, it's raw, natural water. So good for you. Fresh springs. (laughs) (laughs) Accurate. So, I don't mean to be a buzzkill, but we have been going for a while, and I need to get to bed here soon. No, I I completely understand. This has been going on for... This is definitely our longest episode. Well, maybe other than Delta Green, but... Well, it depends on how much we end up having to get cut out. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean... There was a good five minutes in the start. No, we don't talk about that. <laughs> it was a it was a good time that I'm sure isn't being saved maliciously. Oh yeah, crispy. What, what, I just can't wait. Vietnam. <laughs> don't worry about it. I just can't wait for the uh, outtakes episode that's probably going to show up at some point. Do we have any? Okay, we can't have final thoughts on food because we're going to keep going. No, no. I ate his liver with the side of fava beans and a nice Chianti. I chopped alls and ate them. That was a all right, Albert Fish. That was something they said in King Cowboy Bebop reboot. What? I did not watch that because I got annoyed after the first like. I don't want to watch it because this is yeah. an affront. It feels that is like the a... correct response. Ugh. Okay. On that bombshell. No, 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 no. Here's a quick little fact about sushi. All right. It's oh. delicious and we all enjoy it. We appreciate it for what it is. Which version? Yes. The American yes. because we're Americans. Yeah. Japanese sushi is more it's a cultural issue. What I think is a another one of my cultural conspiracies, which is that when people take a food from one place to another, they're taking street food and then they're making it fancy. Yeah. So Japanese sushi is a street food. It's made to just be like, here's a bunch of garbage, get out, sort of thing. Then Americans took a look at yeah. it and said, what if we like fancy it up a little bit, add a bunch of sauce, tempura? Really spe- yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. Because did you see the um, images I put in Private Unplugged? It was fish covered in vinegar, salt, merged in rice. And it was fermented for possibly month time. Yeah. And then they just pull out the fish, ate that, threw away the sushi. No, threw away the rice. But then around 1600, 1700, they began to go, hey, what if we ate the rice? Yeah, I'll take my sushi from Kroger or Publix. Thank you very much. Honestly, I kind of want to try that. I mean, it's been a few hundred years. They more than likely fancied it, as you said. 
that's what everyone does when you get something new. Yeah. Yep. A lot of uh, Chinese perspective of American meals, they actually just make it out of hot dogs. Huh. Oh, makes sense. Yeah, that's the American meals are with ketchup and hot dogs most of the time. Huh. Fancied up. That's terrible. I mean, technically, that literally what you said with sushi is when a bunch mm-hmm. of rich people went, mm, this is foreign delicacy. Mm. Yeah. But then purper happened and uh, it, it, it sushi went ass. Oh, yeah. I would do it. Yeah. Sushi went way out of style. Can't imagine why. Yes. So maybe we'll dial into this in the uh, food cast part two. Yeah. Part two of six. Yes. I think that we definitely are due for another episode of this. Yeah. At least more specifics of foods. Just not absolutely anytime soon. Like I didn't evolve into the teas I've been drinking, um, gut health, cultural, geographical push towards certain foods. All sorts of things we could talk about, yes. Yeah. Or the um, bullshit Chinese, here, eat, snort this walrus tusk, and you'll get a boner, I swear. Oh, that's a whole other thing. It's just cultures doing that shit. Because that's, that's, oh man. A lot of topics that we can cover yeah. with this later on. Yeah. Anyway, Crispy Kraut's tired and he needs to go to bed. I gotta get up at like 5 a.m., man. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> We're just, you know, we, we just gotta end. Yep. Yeah. So, this has been the Auxiliary Unplugged. Thank you for listening. Bye.